Choir, thank you for that song. What a a perfect reminder of how appropriate it is we're following up Easter Sunday with this message on the second coming of Christ. Because as that song reminded us, one of the, the key statements of faith for believers is that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And the story of redemption of of Jesus requires all three of those. That Christ died, Christ rose from the grave, and Christ is coming back again for His church. The second coming of Christ is as essential a doctrine as the incarnation, as the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, is the second coming of Jesus Christ. I said last week that without the resurrection, the crucifixion is only half the story. That's only half the redemptive story. You have to have the resurrection. Well, the second coming of Christ is the second half of our redemption. Jesus will come again. Uh, Without the second coming of Christ, the Bible doesn't make sense. The death and resurrection doesn't make sense. We're leaving off the climax of the story. So as Paul Harvey would say, and now for the rest of the story... Let's look and see what the Bible teaches us about the second coming of Christ. And we're going to frame that around this article from the Baptist Faith and Message that says God in His own time and in His own way. That's important. God in His own time and in His own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to His promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised. And Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous, in their resurrected and glorified bodies, will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. Now, as we think about this, you know, it, it, you know I think about watching a movie. Maybe, maybe you've watched a movie or a TV show with somebody who just asks questions the whole time. Don't you love that? You know, what happens next? Are they going to die? Are they going to be okay? Is that the bad guy? You know, and it's like, just watch the movie and find out, right? It's like they want to know all the details up front. And I see some people looking at other people. So we know, I know who you are now. It's like, it's like there's like this anxiety over needing to know that it's going to end okay. And, and they want to know all those details up front. Well, that's, that's often what happens when it comes to eschatology, the study of last things. People want to know the details. People are fascinated about what happens when this life is over. What happens in the next life, whether that's their personal end of their life on this earth, what happens after death, or when time comes to an end. What is that going to be like? What's going to happen? And all too often people are more worried about the details of how and when this will happen than simply resting in the promise that it will happen. That Jesus is coming back again. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, He says, Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son. While Jesus was here on the earth, He didn't know this time. He said, The Father alone knows. So God wants us to focus on the fact that Jesus will return and how we are to live in the reality of that return. How does that influence the way we live our lives? That Jesus will come back. He doesn't want us to obsess and worry over all the details of how and when and where. And So so I'm sorry if you came this morning thinking that I was going to make predictions about the future. 
I'm not. So I'm not going to interpret in current events today and trying to predict the future. And if you notice, the Baptist faith and message is also vague on those kinds of things. Herschel Hobbes, who was very instrumental in writing the previous Baptist faith and message, wrote this. He said, since the New Testament speaks in broad terms, in broad terms about last things, it is to be expected that problems would arise as to the interpretation of the details. For instance... Interpreters differ as to the number of comings, resurrections, judgments, the millennium, along with certain other details as to the end of the age. And he concluded, it is sufficient to say that one's position as to details has never been a test of orthodoxy among Baptists. Thank the Lord for that, right? Because we probably all have a different take on how we interpret uh, the way in which things will happen at the end of time. So today we're going to focus on the basics of what we should all be able to agree, uh, agree upon. We're going to talk about the things that we can know rather than focus on things we can speculate about. So the first question we're going to answer this morning is what can we know? Unequivocally, what can we know about last things? The Baptist faith and message starts, God in His own time and in His own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. So you and I can have different ideas and opinions of how history is going to wrap up, but ultimately it's all up to God's divine will and His plan. You know, and this isn't new. This isn't just something we have, you know, kind of obsessed over here in in our century. Uh, When Jesus' disciples were with Him, they were concerned about the how and the when of, of God bringing His kingdom promises to fulfillment. If you remember in Acts chapter 1, right before Jesus' ascension back to heaven, they're asking him, Jesus, when will the kingdom come to Israel? When, when will all this you know, take place? And Jesus said in Acts 1-7, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. And I think if it wasn't you know, Peter and, 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 and James and John and Andrews to know, it certainly isn't ours to know either. So we shouldn't be surprised that there are more things we don't know about the ins and the outs and the details of the second coming than we do know. And we have to remember as well how wrong the Jews of Jesus' day got all of those prophecies about the Messiah's first coming, right? They were very wrong. The disciples had it totally backwards. We should remember that when we think about the prophecies of His second coming and approach this subject with humility. We can have our theories, our views, our interpretations, but like I said, ultimately, God will bring it to fulfillment in His time and in His way. So here are five things the Bible is absolutely clear about in regard to last things. The first is that time will end. Time will end. We, the world does not just go on indefinitely forever. We heard a prophetic promise in our Old Testament reading this morning where God promised through Isaiah. He said, For I will create new heavens... And a new earth, the past events will be remembered or come to mind no more. Now, in our New Testament reading, we then heard John's vision of the fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy. So the Bible is remarkably clear and consistent, Old Testament and New Testament, in foretelling that this present age will come to an end and God will remake the earth and the heavens, all of creation, into something new and that is untouched by sin and suffering and death. So we may not know when Jesus will return, but we can know that He will return. 
And that we are a day closer to that today than we were yesterday. Amen? We're a day closer to that day. And this is why Jesus said that it was foolish to store up treasures on earth. Remember? Jesus said, don't lay up treasures on earth where rust and mud, where uh, moths and rust will destroy, where thieves will break in and steal. He said, instead, set your treasure in heaven, for that's where your heart will be. The reason is because this world and all of its pleasures and priorities and its desires will come to an end. It will not last forever. Only what is in heaven will last for eternity. Now, I know that concepts like the end of time, a new heaven and a new earth, even just the idea of eternity, they're kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around, aren't they? Because everything we know has an expiration date, right? Everything. Everything we know, everyone we know had a beginning and it's going to have an end. We are bound by time. So these things are a little hard for us to wrap our minds around. But the Bible is clear that our time is short. But once we come to know Jesus, He gives us a life that has no expiration date. He gives us eternal life. And that means we are to live with our eyes on the prize of the return of Jesus. We are to live with hope knowing that someday God will bring His work to completion and He will fulfill His purpose for us and for the world. Time, history, has an end point. The second thing we can know is that at that time, Jesus will return. When history, when time comes to an end, Christ will return. The Baptist Faith Message goes on to say, according to His promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. We can know that Jesus will come back because Jesus himself promised that he would come back. And when a man who dies and as he promised rises from the dead three days later, when he makes a promise, you can count on it, right? You believe him from then on. So Jesus promised that he would return in John 14. Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Now, there are some things we can know for certain about this return of Jesus. And and he just gives us the first one right here. And it's that he will return personally. Jesus says, I will come back and take you to be with me where I am. He is going to return personally for His bride, the church, for us, His followers. He's not sending an angel. He's not sending someone else. Jesus will personally return. Secondly, He will return visibly. When Jesus ascended to heaven, there uh, on the Mount of Olives, and all the the disciples were standing there watching it, and and He went up and and was swallowed up by the clouds and couldn't see Him anymore. And they were just kind of standing there gazing into the heavens. It says that angels came to them and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen Him going into heaven. So just as they saw Jesus ascend into heaven, we who are alive at the time will see Him descend from heaven. In fact, all of creation will see Him. Every eye will see And then every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
He will return visibly. There will be no doubts, no questions, no speculations. Everyone will see Him return. Third, He will return gloriously. So Jesus' return is going to be personal. It's going to be visible. And in that, in that visibility, it's glorious. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 25, 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him. Now, I can't even imagine that. Not just one, not just a dozen, not just a, you know, like a quartet of angels. No, it's all of them. All of the angel armies of heaven will come with Him and then He will sit on His glorious throne. Paul put it this way in Philippians 2, 10 through 11, as I was just quoting a second ago. At the very name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven, on earth, under the earth, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The second coming will be nothing like the first coming. When Jesus comes again, He will come gloriously as a conquering King to claim His kingdom forever. The trumpet will sound, the angels will rejoice, the sky will be parted, and everyone will know beyond the shadow of the doubt that Jesus is here and He is Lord and He is God and He is deserving of our worship and praise. There will be no doubt. And Jesus' return will be suddenly. He will return suddenly. You can read on the screen or turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Jesus talks a lot in this chapter about last things. But I want us to look at verses 36 through 44. Listen to this closely. I read a part of this earlier. Now concerning that day and hour, no one knows... Neither the angels of heaven nor the Son except the Father alone. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding grain with a handmill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this. If the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you are also to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, a lot of the speculation about end-time prophecies and a lot of the people interpreting current events, listen, all my life I've heard so many theories about who the Antichrist is. You know, I can remember when I was little, it was the Ayatollah Khomeini, right? And then it was Saddam Hussein. And now people say it's Vladimir Putin, you know. Uh, Republicans will say it's the Democrat candidate. Democrats will say it's the Republican candidate, right? And we all have our theories as to who the Antichrist is going to be. I've heard people claim that the mark of the beast is the UPC barcode on the back of your Cheerios, right? Or it's your credit card, or it's your cell phone, you know? But listen, one of the reasons people get so obsessed about this stuff is they, they, why why would you want to predict when Jesus is going to come? What difference does that make? Yes, Jesus gave some signs. He talked about some things that we can expect. That, we'll, that, that, that we can know it, he's getting closer. But that wasn't so that we could somehow rush it or delay it. You know, all these movies are always about trying to stop Armageddon. Listen, when Armageddon comes, there's no stopping it. That's right. 
The reason Jesus gives us some prophecies, the reason the Bible gives us some prophecies, is to enhance our anticipation of His return. It's to get more excited about it. It's like Advent. Every candle you light every week gets you more excited because guess what? We're closer to the birth of Jesus. That's the way these prophecies should be for us. They enhance our anticipation and they deepen our urgency to share the gospel. It's not to make us fearful. It's not to make us fret. It's not to make us try to hurry Him along or slow Him down. That's not the way that works. Jesus said that when He returns, people will be going about their daily lives. Grinding grain, out in the field working, marrying, giving in marriage, eating and drinking and being merry and going to football games and all of that. That doesn't mean that it's going to happen in the fall, by the way. That's not a, that's not a prediction. So there's little profit in obsessing over prophecies, trying to match them with current events. We should rather treat every day as if this could be the day Jesus comes back. He says, be alert because you don't know the day or the hour. He will return suddenly. So we know that time will end, we know Jesus will return, and we know the dead will be raised. The Bible teaches that all people will experience a bodily resurrection at the end of history. Now, this was a controversial idea in the first century because Greeks and Romans believed that the physical was inferior to the spiritual. A lot of this is because of Plato. Plato talked a lot about this. And so they, they thought the spiritual was, was a better, you know, superior thing than the physical. And then Gnosticism took it a step further and said that our bodies and the physical world is actually impure and evil. So the idea of resurrection, the idea that this body would be resurrected from the dead for me to live in it forever was offensive to them. And that's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is having to defend the idea of Jesus' resurrection and the promise of our future resurrection. And we looked at this some last week. And, and Paul's point is that, again, the second part of the story is the resurrection of Jesus and it's our resurrection. We've talked about this before, that salvation comes in three phases, if you will. The minute you, you, you confess and repent of your sin and ask Jesus into your heart, that's justification. And you are saved that moment from that eternal penalty for sin. But then the Holy Spirit comes to live within you. And throughout the rest of your life, it's sanctification. You're being daily saved from the power of sin. As God helps you become more like Jesus and less like the world. But then there's coming a day when Christ returns and we'll experience glorification. We'll be saved from the very presence of sin. That's what we're talking about today. And Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 15 to make this amazing, beautiful promise. He says, listen. I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Now, I've, I've seen that, you know, some nurseries, they have that as a sign over the door. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. <laughs> in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we, meaning those who are alive at that time, will be changed. Then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory over all of that through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul tells us there is coming a day when the dead will be raised. He further writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 
Beginning in verse 13, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, meaning those who have already died, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way. Through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are still alive for the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. These are meant to be words of encouragement. Words of comfort. Now, the rapture is not a word that's found in the Bible. You don't see the word rapture anywhere. But it's a word we use to describe what Paul is talking about here. This resurrection of the dead, the the transformation of the living, and being caught up together with the Lord in the air. Now, I want you to bear with me as I tiptoe close to one of those uh, eschatological landmines that I said I wasn't going to talk about today, right? There are only two other places in the New Testament where the Greek word for meat, when it says that we'll meet him in the air, there's only two other places that's used. And in both places it refers to a group of people going out to meet someone and then welcoming them back to where they came from. It's not going out to meet someone and going away with them. It's never used in that way. So in this image that Paul is painting, imagine a victorious king has just defeated his enemy and he's riding victoriously back to his kingdom and the people of the city come out to meet him and to rejoice. They're not just sitting there waiting for him to come in the gate. They rush out the gate to meet him and to welcome him and usher him back into the city as the victorious king. It's Palm Sunday all over again. Isn't that what happened? The people met Jesus outside the city. They threw him a parade. They welcomed him as he rode victoriously into Jerusalem. And what Paul is saying is there's coming a day when the king of kings comes back and he's going to come not on a donkey, but on a white stallion, riding victoriously as the conquering king. And we will meet him and we will welcome him to the earth. So it's not a picture. The rapture is not a picture of Jesus coming and snatching us away like we're, like we're rats from a sinking ship. He is coming back victorious to be with us in the new heavens and the new earth. To reign forever on the earth as king. At that triumphant return, the final enemy, death, has been defeated once and for all. That's why the dead are raised. That's why the living are transformed into bodies that will never die. Amen? This is is a glorious promise of the victorious return of Jesus Christ. Now, last week we read in John 5 where Jesus explained that it's not just the believers that are raised. All people will be raised. There will be a resurrection of every human being who has ever died. And that brings us to the final thing we can know with certainty about last things, that there will be a final judgment. There will be a final judgment. All humanity will be judged. Jesus said some everlasting life and some to eternal damnation. This judgment is described by Jesus in Matthew 25 in what's called the parable of the sheep and the goats. Now, people like to focus on the part of this parable 
that talks about feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and visiting the sick and in prison. We should treat everybody as if we're serving Jesus. And right, we should. But people like to ignore the main part of this parable, the point of this parable, and that's that Jesus will come back to judge all people. It's a parable of judgment. So I'm going to read the parts that people leave out, okay? Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him. And He will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right. That's you guys. And He will put the goats on His left. Sorry, y'all. You you picked that side. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now listen, you can't pick the parts of that parable that you like about feeding the hungry and ignore the parts you don't like about eternal damnation. If the first is true, then the second must be true, because Jesus said it all. In fact, all of Scripture clearly teaches that a day of judgment will come, when all wrongs will be made right, when everyone will be held accountable to their deeds, justice will be served, and our eternal destinies will be forever sealed. And for those who don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, this is the dark and dreadful day of the Lord. But for believers in Christ who have trusted in God's grace and mercy, this is a day of blessed hope. Listen, in this life, we know that all attempts at justice fall short, don't they? We, we decry it. We wring our hands over it. It seems like there's no justice So much of the time that we can endure the injustices of this world because we know the absolute, ultimate display of God's righteous justice and holiness will come when Jesus returns. And everyone's evil deeds, words, thoughts, and motives will be exposed. Both Christians and non-Christians. All of us will be held to account. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. Ouch. You have any careless words you've spoken? Some of us could probably fill a book. For by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you'll be condemned. Now, those who are in Christ, those who have confessed their sin, have recognized their need for a Savior, that, that listen, our, curli- our careless words and deeds, our sins are stacked so high, there's not enough I can do to make up for it. Those of us that recognize that and trust in what Jesus did for us on Calvary's cross, listen, we have an advocate that will ensure our salvation. We don't have to fear this judgment. You've been forgiven for all those careless and hurtful words and sinful deeds. God's judgment will pass over you because the blood of Calvary's Lamb is upon your heart. And for those, we will forever live with God in heaven. Now I'll say just a few words about heaven. The Bible describes our eternal home as a place of reunion where we will see all the fellow believers who have gone before us into heaven. And yes, the Bible says that we will know each other in heaven. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 13. Jesus was recognized by the disciples. 
somehow Peter, James, and John even recognized Moses and Elijah when he appeared, when they appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. We will know each other. I think we'll know everyone in heaven somehow. It's a place of reunion. The Bible tells us it's a place for rewards, where we'll, we will be rewarded for our acts of service and devotion. Now, I'm not 100% sure exactly what that looks like. But remember, Jesus talked about laying up treasures in heaven. So, so there's like a, I don't know, like, like a bank account, I guess, a savings account up there. Somehow we're saving things in heaven. We're, we're storing up treasures in heaven. Paul and James both talk about crowns that we will receive as rewards. But then in Revelation 4, it describes how we will lay all those crowns and treasures at the feet of Jesus. Listen, when we get to heaven and we're standing before the throne of God, we're not going to care about accolades. We're not going to care about trophies and crowns. We're going to recognize that only Jesus is worthy of praise and thanksgiving. And we're going to lay everything, we're going to cast our crowns down at His feet. Amen? Amen. And we will be with the Lord forever in a place of rest where we can settle down and be at home with God. Heaven is the ultimate green pastures and still water. It's the place where our cup so overflows. We are so overwhelmed with God's goodness and mercy and there are no more enemies with which to wrestle. No struggles with sin, no worries, no pain. But listen, as beautiful as that picture of heaven is, the picture the New Testament and the Bible paints of hell is equally dreadful. In the Old Testament... We read about hell. In the New Testament, we read about hell. Jesus said more about hell than He did about heaven. And the Bible consistently depicts hell as a place of eternal torment and suffering. To deny the reality of hell is to deny the truthfulness of the Word of God. And listen, an eternal torment in hell, it's not just a religious fable that's used to scare people into being good. We've already said... We can't be good. There's no scaring anybody into being good because we can't be good. Hell is a reality that is taught again and again in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it speaks about hell. And it always speaks about it as a place where the wicked go when they die, whereas the righteous go to be in God's presence. Job described hell as a place of darkness. The Psalms as a place of silence where no one can praise God. The Old Testament is clear that hell is a place of finality from which there is no return. The New Testament gives us a fuller revelation of hell. Again, always is a place of eternal judgment. In Revelation 20, it says that the sea, this is talking about the end of time. The end of time, when the sea will give up the dead that were in it. The de- that death and hell will give up the dead that are in them. This is that resurrection, even for those who are lost. Death And hell are then, or each one is judged according to their works, and death and hell will be thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. So if you think hell is bad, there's something even worse called the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life, anyone who has not given their lives to Jesus Christ, will be thrown into the lake of fire. Now, people today get uncomfortable with this. They don't like this idea of hell or a lake of fire or eternal torment. And, and they don't like the idea that, you know, they say, how could a loving God send people there? Well, God doesn't send you there. You send yourself there with your sin and rebellion and your rejection of Christ. But listen, God's judgment, His wrath against sin is a part of His holiness 
It's a part of His righteousness. Listen, if there is no hell, then there is no punishment for sin. There's no consequence for wickedness. There's no judgment against evil. And if that's the case, then God is not just. We don't need a Savior, and Jesus died for nothing. And if Jesus died for nothing, then He was either a fool or a liar and not the Son of God. And our faith is in vain, and my preaching is useless. Hell is an essential doctrine. Every major biblical belief, every belief in the Baptist faith and message from God's character to sin and humanity to the doctrines of salvation to Christology, the church, eschatology, all of it requires what one preacher called a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. And if these things are true, if this world's days are numbered and time itself will someday end, if Jesus is coming back to resurrect the dead, make all things new, and judge all people for their eternal destiny, either in heaven with God or in hell forever separated from Him, then should these things not have a tremendous impact on the way we live? And that's the second question I want to wrap up with quickly. How then shall we live? If all of this is true, how then shall we live? If Jesus could come back at any time, How then shall we live? If we will all stand before God and give an account for our lives, how then shall we live? If everyone will spend eternity either in heaven or in hell based on what they do with Jesus, how then shall we live? This is the question that Peter asks in 2 Peter 3.11. He says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Three thoughts, and then we'll wrap up. We'll be done. One Keep eternity in view. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul talks about how Jesus will return using Jesus' own analogy like a thief in the night. But he says, you know what? You're not children of the night. You're children of the day. So his return isn't anything for us to fear. Rather, we are to live as children of light. In other words, because Jesus is coming back, we should live differently than the world. We shouldn't be living like the lost around us. We cannot live as though this life were all there is. C.S. Lewis described this life as the vestibule to eternity. This life is the foyer to forever. And so we must live our lives not just focused on the here and now, but with an eternity, with Jesus in heaven in view. Peter also writes in 2 Peter 3, Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, while we're waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in His sight, at peace. Live with eternity in view, knowing that the end is nearer than we think. Whether that's the end of time or just the end of our time, it's nearer than you think. Secondly, because that's true, we should make the most of our time, right? We're not promised another day. We should make the most of our time. Paul says in Ephesians 5, he says, pay careful attention then to how you walk, meaning how you live your life. Not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. We should live every day as if it's our last. Because none of us know the day or the hour of either Jesus' return or are going to be with Him. In John 9, 4, Jesus says, We must do the works of Him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. Listen, this is the impetus behind the Great Commission. This is our motivation to share our faith with our neighbors and with the nations. As one preacher put it, the day is coming when the last tract will have been shared. 
the last sermon preached, and the last invitation given. The day is coming when the last chance to be saved will have come and gone. We must work while the sun shines, for night comes when no man can work. This is both a motive for the lost to give their lives to Jesus and be saved, and it's a motive for the saved to go and share our faith with the lost. Amen? And the final thing is we should anticipate Christ's return. We live with an eternity in view, we make the most of our time, and we anticipate His return. Listen, if we're only living for this life, then we live for the treasures that will perish. And we spend our days chasing after the things the pagans chase after. We should examine our lives and ask, am I living in anticipation of His return or in anxiety over His return? Am I merely having a form of godliness but denying its power in my life? Or am I crucifying my flesh, denying myself, taking up my cross daily and following Jesus? Are you walking daily in fellowship with God and being filled by His Spirit? Are you living in anticipation of His return? Philippians 3.20 reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven. And if that's true, Paul says, we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you living as if you're a citizen of the new heaven and the new earth that Christ will bring with Him? Or are you living like a citizen of this passing age? Where's your allegiance? Where's your focus? If you're eagerly waiting for Jesus to come back, then your prayer should be that of John's in Revelation 22.20 when he said, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Is that your prayer? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. For those of us who know Jesus and are certain that we'll spend eternity with Him, listen, the details of how and when either we die or Christ returns ultimately doesn't matter because you know what? In the end, we're going to spend eternity happy and whole in His heavenly presence. What happens between here and there really doesn't matter. For the believer, these truths should motivate us to live in eager anticipation of His return, to urgently share the gospel with those around us who don't know Jesus and face an eternity forever separated from God. It gives us hope that in the end there will be justice. God will make all things right and new, and we will live forever with Him in a world without sin. But for those who don't have that certainty, if you don't know that you know that you belong to Jesus Christ, Revelation 22 also includes an invitation. It says, Both the Spirit and the Bride, meaning the church, both the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let anyone who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. Are you ready for Jesus to come back? Do you know where you will spend eternity? Are you living daily as if it could be your last? What will you say when you stand before Jesus? And are you ready for that day to be today? We're going to stand. We're going to sing. You have an opportunity to respond to this invitation. If you don't know Jesus Christ, I urge you to come. Drink from the waters of eternal life.
And if you do belong to Jesus, are you living in anticipation of His return? Are you urgently sharing the gospel? Maybe you need to come and rededicate your life to living in the reality of the second coming of Christ. Maybe God is calling you and your family to unite with this church to help us share this good news with our neighbors and the nations. Whatever God is saying to you, would you come? Let's pray and then we'll sing. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we don't understand everything it talks about. We don't understand everything about you. If we did, it, you wouldn't be as, as big and glorious a God as you are. Your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, of course. There are mysteries and things that, that, that you've revealed to us that we don't fully understand yet, but we long for the day that we will. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't understand and know the simple reality that they need Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, I pray that we